This is the first in a series being taught on what we call the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments that were once proudly posted outside of the Supreme Court, most courthouses and displayed in church buildings and in the homes of people that proclaim themselves of Christ, and which have all been removed and forgotten about. It was the Ten Commandments that was the litmus test for the judicial system within the United States and the moral code for how people must act toward each other. But with the attack on all things God, the Decalogue, as the Ten Commandments are also known, have fallen on hard times. The precepts that it contains and to which the moral, political, and judicial fabric of this nation once was hemmed in by has all been torn asunder. And we are now reaping what we as a nation have sown. In a poll taken back in 2007, more people could name the ingredients of a Big Mac sandwich than they could the Ten Commandments. More people could recite the names of the, of the fictional characters from the Brady Bunch than could recite what has been known to be the bedrock of human civilization. And in England, a survey conducted two years later found that only 6% of the teenagers polled could even name one of the Ten Commandments. And at the same time, the same percentage of people who knew that do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the same percentage that knew that that wasn't in the Ten Commandments, wasn't one of the Ten Commandments, also said that remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy was also not one of the Ten Commandments. But we must remember the Ten Commandments were not given to the secular, for the secular. They were not given to all men in order to form a more perfect union. They were not given to the world in order that the Western civilization could flourish. They were given from God to a specific chosen set-apart group of people. They were given from God to them for a specific reason, and they were given to a chosen people of God. And as a proclaimed Christian, you are one of those chosen people, part of that family that he raised up from nothing. Can you recite the Ten Commandments? Do you know them? Do you follow them? And more important than these questions is knowing the why that they were given to us, his chosen people. You see, there's a famine in the land. And you may argue that based upon the percentage of people that are morbidly obese, that this is not the case. But the famine that I'm speaking about is, the, is not the food that is found out there. It's more important than those things that we shove in our face. The famine that we are experiencing is a famine of the Word of God, a famine that was promised us by the prophet Amos back in chapter 8, verse 11, when he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but a hearing of the words of Yahweh. You once again may take exception with this statement. After all, you can turn the TV on, the radio on, go online and listen and hear the, the word being preached at any moment of any day. 
But we need to keep in mind that that prophecy of Amos was given about the coming of the Messiah, given to the covenant people of God, given to the people who had the word of God, who knew the word of God, and who supposedly lived by the word of God. And it was to these people, in a time when there was a famine in their land, that the true bread, the true food, the true drink came. And it was to these that had the word, that claimed to know God, that he had the greatest issue with. Verses 15 through 19 of Matthew 22 are the setup of such an encounter between that true bread and those that claim to be full the ones that claimed to be of the Lord. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. So here's the setup. These men who had the word of God, who thought that they were doing God, who said that they knew God, they were the ones that were plotting against God, trying to trap him in his own word. And the response by Jesus is sublime. Verses 20 through 22. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they marveled at it, or when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The follow-up question that was left unanswered that was fully implied by Jesus to these men who claimed to be of God, children of God, is this. In whose image and likeness are you made in? Then what should you be rendering to him? And there was at that time another group that was suffering from the same famine, who just like the first group didn't know God, but who viewed themselves as better than that first group, closer to the God that they didn't know. They, after seeing the first group shot down by this upstart that claimed to know God, they sent their very best to him to catch him. Verses 22 through 33. The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow of the offspring and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh. After them all the women died. In the resurrection, therefore, of those seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. 
The answer by Jesus to the first group was what they were hypocrites, claiming to be one thing, but being something else. The answer to the second group was that they didn't know Scripture or the power of God. If this were a baseball game, Jesus is batting a thousand. He's hitting it out of the park every time he comes up to the plate. Which is why, after hearing his response, they came back to him with what they thought was the hardest question of all. Verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Grand slam. Home run. Game over. The response by Jesus may have silenced these men, but they didn't understand the meaning behind Jesus. what, what Jesus had just said. And Jesus knew this, which is why he, we have verses 41 through 45. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, My Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If, David, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did, they, did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Mic drop. And he turns and walks away. The why that they were not able to answer the final question by Jesus is paramount in understanding the meaning behind the answers given by Jesus concerning the greatest commandment of the law, concerning that woman, concerning the taxes. They could not fathom the answer concerning how David could pen such a verse and who that person was that he was speaking of. And they could not, for the same reason that they could not understand the precepts of the law concerning carrying on the name of a brother after he dies. David was writing of things that he probably didn't fully comprehend at that moment. He was living proof of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that says all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work, and further clarified in 2 Peter 1.21, which says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. David was writing of a spiritual truth that was truth at that moment that he penned it, but which had not at that moment come to be. And when that truth came to be, the word manifested, tabernacling with these men. They could not understand that the words that they penned by David, quoted by Jesus, was referring to him as the king, as Lord. And we shake our heads and wonder that these men didn't get it. We think it's irreprehensible that they would try to use the word of God to try to trap God into being their version of God. But we should woe up a bit on this for a couple reasons. 
First, we need to stop and remember our Reformed theology. Remember that since they did not have eyes to see, ears to hear, God was not allowing them to get it. You see, there is a separation within humanity. And Scripture, all Scripture, is for those that are of Him. Those that are not, they can read Scripture. They may be able to get some aspects of it, but it's not for them. They were, these men at that moment, they were not of him, not his children, and not able to comprehend. Jesus said of them in Matthew 13, verses 14 and 15, In them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You will ever be hearing, but never understanding. You will ever be seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's hearts have grown callous, and they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. And the prophecy that he was referring to is this from Isaiah 6.10, which says, Make the heart of these people dull, and their eyes heavy, and they blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. That's one side. But to the other side, Jesus said this. He said, of those that are of him, he said, to you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, but may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they sh should turn and be forgiven. Mark 4, 10 through 12. But at the same time, we expect that those that are of this king, this Lord, are going to be able to see. We expect that they are going to be able to hear, are going to be able to discern. Because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, John 10, 27. More than that, God through Paul tells us, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself, <clears throat> is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instru instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16. Before I go on, you need to place yourself in one of these two groups. Are you a natural person? And by that I'm asking, are you still living in your sin, still having been born only once and still an antichrist? All that are not of the family of God are these things. They are heretical, treasonous terrorists, hell-bent on stealing from the rightful king of the universe. And they will be judged when they die for their heresy, their treason, and their terrorism. And when they stand before this Lord and King, the one that these men tried to trap in his own words, do you see yourself as a sinner? which is a summation of all those words, heretical, treasonous, terrorist. 
Do you understand that while everything else in the created world brings glory to God through their obedience to him, you steal his glory. You call him a liar. And for this reason, you will be punished. Or have you been given eyes to see the reality of who and what you are? Does your conscience burn with guilt over the sin against this good and great God? Have you been given ears to hear the reality of this God? That there's a hope found in the propitiation of the one that you have been mocking in your disobedience. If you've been given eyes to see, ears to hear, and if you have believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you have been and are saved. You've been adopted, purchased as a slave of God, and you are now a son of God. You are one of those that Paul was speaking to in 1 Corinthians. You have the mind of Christ. Then why is it that when we read the account of the questions concerning the woman who married all the brothers, why is it that we use it as evidence of what marriage in heaven is going to be like? We, we do this because we have not had our eyes trained, our ears tuned to the spiritual we missed the reason that the law concerning the brother's responsibility was given in the first place. And we think it's all about an earthly lineage, that it was all given to ensure the propagation of a man's lineage instead of understanding that it was pointing to a greater lineage, pointing to a man who would be born of a woman, who was of a line of a man, who had, been stepped in, who had stepped in and been the redeemer of a family name, even though he wasn't a brother, even though he wasn't the closest redeemer. He may, and we may applaud Jesus for his sublime response concerning the coin, how he turned that question on its head. But do we really think through the implications that were stated there? And we think that the answer concerning the greatest of the commandments really doesn't apply to us. Or we think that we can't accomplish it. So what's the point of it? We think in the earthly and the carnal instead of the heavenly and the eternal. And just as that obligation of the brother speaks of the Redeemer that we are all in need of, just as the fact that we owe everything to the one in whose image we have been created and we don't pay that debt, that is the reason that we don't understand that the response by Jesus to the lawyer who was a Sadducee, that it was not a summation of our obligation to God and man. It was the telling of the one who all the commands given speak of. We don't understand this. We think that we're supposed to try to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. We th actually think that, and we actually try to do it. And some people actually think that they accomplish this. And those that do to try to do this, they do so in their flesh. And for this reason, no matter how many good acts they do, they are doing nothing good. And they're actually driving themselves further away from the one that they say that they are living to serve. We don't understand that the reason that we should love our neighbor 
as we love ourselves is not for them or even us. It's not about us at all. It's all about the one who created them and us. And we miss this completely. We need to get a good handle on the one who is the command giver, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We in our modern evangelicalism discount the giving of the Ten Commandments, and we do so to our own detriment. How do we do that? Well, how many are, are here in this room that can name the Ten Commandments? If I went through and just asked you, can you tell me the Ten Commandments? How many here could do it? We are content with ourselves to perhaps memorize that Matthew 22, those Matthew 22 verses. You know, the synopsis, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest in the, the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor yourself. And we think that this is a summation of the laws. And because of this, we don't really need to think through those laws, those commands. Jesus just gave us the cliff notes, and we think that's enough. We, in our Western evangelical, evangelical mindset, know more about the latest TikTok challenge than we do about the Ten Commandments. I could ask you that one. I bet you would know. We know more about that than we do about, that, about the Ten Commandments, or even the cliff note version that Jesus gave to these men. And this is not acceptable. While we might know what the Great Commission is generally, we must have forgotten what it is specifically. Since we are commanded by Jesus to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age, Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. Generally, we don't go. Generally, we don't make disciples. And we must not be teaching them to observe all that he commanded us, since most evangelicals don't even have a clue what the Ten Commandments are, or more importantly, the reason for the Ten Commandments. We don't understand the first and great commandment because we do not understand the why of any and all of the commandments. And to get that, we have to go back to when the commands were given, back to the book of Exodus. Exodus 20, to be exact. Turn with me there. Genesis, Exodus. So the book of Exodus is the account of God taking his chosen people that had been born from Abraham through Isaac and then through Jacob, who was renamed Israel, and who with his 12 sons were sent by God into Egypt to become a multitude of people. And previous to the famine that happens, God sent Joseph into Egypt on an all-expense paid trip and apprenticeship program called slavery. And he used this evil for good as Joseph was a harbinger of life, not only to the children of Israel, but also the Egyptians as well. But after these events, God chose for the children of Israel to stay in Egypt 
until a Pharaoh rose that didn't know Joseph, and who saw the children of Israel as nothing more but a, than a great labor force. And things got serious then as they continued to multiply, and the Egyptians then started being concerned about the number of resident aliens in their country. So instead of deporting them, though, they just murdered their male babies and kept, them, kept using them as labor force. And the people, when they saw this, they cried out to God for deliverance from it and from the bondage that they were in, and which was his plan all along. And the next 14 chapters are all about the calling of that man, Moses, the revelation of the plan of God to make the children of Israel a nation and the plagues of God on that nation that was under his wrath. That's the synopsis of the, verse 19, or the first 19 chapters of the book of Exodus, which then brings us to Exodus 20. One that most people, when they get there, they look at it and they go, oh yeah, this is where Moses gives the Ten Commandments. So let's read Exodus 20, 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your, mother, your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. But here are those things that we call the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Law. For most people, when they see the Ten Commandments, when we see these verses, we see a to-do list. We see these verses and might see a constraint on our lives or even feel a burden within ourselves knowing that they are completely impossible for us to adhere to. At least we should understand that as truth. But none of those reactions are the meaning of the why of the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. Before we begin to study the Ten Words, we need to understand the why of the Ten Words. And the why of them, that answer is given to us at the beginning of Exodus chapter 19. Go back one more chapter. Verses 1 through 6. On the third noon moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, 
On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They sent out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The first thing that we are meant to understand concerning the why of the ten words is that these people have been a witness to the reality of the power of this God who was speaking to them. They had all lived through the plagues. They had personally seen, felt, and been witness to the plagues of God being enacted on the Egyptians and also themselves quite often. And from the get-go, we see where our misconception of the Ten Commandments begins because the words are not so much a law as they are a covenant. The two parties of the covenant are given to you in chapter 19, I and you. And in verse 4, God said to the children, you saw what I did to the Egyptians, which encompasses all the humiliation of their false gods of the greatest nation of earth at that time. And the second half of that statement, how I bore you on eagles' wings, speaks of all the events of the Exodus itself. And finally, the statement at the end, how he brought you to myself. And that's just not the arrival to Mount Sinai, which is where they were physically at that moment, but speaks of them entering into a covenant relationship, a familiar relationship with the only true God. And I, I hope that in your brain you're connecting some dots here, because we're supposed to. Because the reality of what is happening here in Exodus with these people is the reality of what has happened here with these people. You and I have entered into a covenant with God. We have not seen God humiliate the false gods of a nation, but we have seen him humiliate and destroy every false deity and the power of this age through the regeneration of our dead hearts and the giving us of the Holy Spirit. And we, like these people, did not do this on our own. He brought us to himself. We have each been carried along on eagles' wings in this life. Amen? We've all each seen God provide and give and bless us with lives that we don't deserve, with this family, this body that we don't deserve. And we've been each been brought to him by him. We've each been given eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that can adore. And just like these people were made to enter into a covenant for a purpose, for a reason, so too have we been. Verses 5 and 6, where they were told, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were his treasured people, a treasured possession among all people. First of all, let's address those stipulations within this covenant. 
that of keeping the law. We think that keeping the law is grievous. It's taxing. It's too much to ask of us. We see this covenant and we see law. We hear law. And the hair on the back of our neck stands up. In fact, our back begins to bow up. We hate the law. And we hate it because we see it as constraining and hemming us in. And it does both of those things. It constrains our sinful nature and allows our godly nature, the one that has been regeneration, regenerated within us, to flourish in order that we can be conformed more into the image of the Savior. And it does hem us in. Just like when your mom told you when you were a little kid, don't play on the railroad tracks. How that law hemmed you in and kept you alive. So too the law of God. This covenant does the same thing. To the chosen people, God is about to redefine that covenant that was made to Abraham. The one, that covenant that he made to Adam. And the people that he was talking to, they weren't thrilled with this covenant or this God. All along, they had murmured about God, about his provision, his protection, how he had been caring for them and carrying them. And it would not take them very long to break the stipulations of this covenant that God is making with them on this day. And because of this, they suffered at the hands of this God that was making this covenant with them. And after having been once again been carried away by a foreign people to a foreign land, they once again were told of the God that had made that covenant with them. This time by the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 43, verse 4. There God reveals to those who are his chosen people who have suffered under his punishment and discipline of the Lord. He tells them this, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life, Isaiah 43, 4. But long before that covenant, those stipulations were broken by these people, the ones that God says that he loves so much, that he gives other people's lives in return for them. The same man is the, that is the mouthpiece that God is using here in Exodus, he tells that, Moses tells them this in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11. He tells these people, you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be his people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out of um, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the land of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes that I rule and the rules that I command you today. And these treasured love people were chosen for a purpose, just as we have been. 
They were to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They were to be that which God promised Abraham that he would be, a blessing to all the nations. Well, how were they supposed to do that? Four ways. They were supposed to be an example to the nations of what the family of God looked like, acted like. They were, the second thing, they were supposed to proclaim the truth of God and invite others into covenant relationship that the, uh, with the God that invited them into covenant relationship. Third, they were supposed to intercede for the rest of the world for sin through acceptable offerings to God, both sacrifices and right behavior. And four, they were to keep the word of God, to preserve the word of God. Any light bulbs coming in on your mind? Are you seeing how the covenant made with these people is the same as the one that has been made with you and me? So if this were the case, since this is the case, why was there a need for a new covenant? And really, what does have this have anything to do with the why of the Ten Commandments? The why of the greatest of that commandment? Well, the answer to those questions is found in the Matthew 22 question that Jesus asked the Pharisees, which is explained in the book of Hebrews. Now we're going to the other side of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8 is a setup of the explanation of the why of the ten words. The why of the first covenant and the why of the last covenant. And it begins by speaking of those of the first covenant. Going to explain this all. Verse 8, it says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed them no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. The first covenant spoken of by, the, uh, by God brought them, uh, spoke to them, the, the people that, um, that God brought out of Egypt. But the first covenant began long before the Exodus. It spoke of the God that chose Abraham from all the peoples. Before that, it spoke of the God that created Adam and Eve and everything in the universe. But the first covenant was the, not the fullness of the covenant that God had planned before the foundation of the world. Listen to Hebrews 12 and the contrast that it's made there concerning the first covenant and the covenant that we have been given. The contrast between us and the people of the first covenant. Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg, them to um, no further, beg that no further messages be spoken to them. 
for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a, a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word of the blood of Abel. Did you catch the contrast there in those verses? Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the reconciler between us and the God whose law we cannot keep because his law is him and he is holy and we are not. Jesus, the Lord that David wrote about in Psalm 110, the Lord who said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. The Lord that the people of the old covenant could not see, could not understand. And neither could we outside of Jesus. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 1 Corinthians 1.30. He, Jesus, is the key that unlocks the meaning of those Matthew 22 answers. He, Jesus, is the key to understanding the why of the ten words. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am Yahweh, your God. God is the reason for the ten words. In giving us the ten words, he is defining who and what he is and who and what we are to be in and through him. The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Words are given us to define God and to allow us to see and know the one that we are being graciously allowed to enter into a covenant with, to allow us to know his character. They give us insight into how holy he really is. He gave us the Ten Words as the, he gave those Ten Words as the constitution for a new nation that he had chosen to represent him because those ten words represent him. And for this reason, he gave them this list. Here is your God, the one that brought you here. He is the one that has made a covenant with you, who sealed that covenant with blood not of a created animal, but the blood of his own son. And we are given this list in order that we can know this God, this Yahweh. And this is the why of the first and the greatest commandment, that is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is not a to-do commandment. This is the outpouring of the done list that he performed on Calvary. He is your God. And he is love. And he is holy. And he is just. And we are of him. Created in him. And we have life through him. 
So let me end this sermon by asking you a question. Whose likeness are you made in? Whose likeness are all humans made in? But whose likeness have you been remade in? What then should you render unto him? And can you not see that the reason that you should render yourself unto him is for no other reason than when you do, you are mimicking him. You're working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You are understanding that it is God who is working in you the will and the ability to do so, all for his own good pleasure. Let us look to the one in whose image that we have been created and then recreated. And let us see how holy, how grand, how loving, and how amazing this God is. Saints, read Exodus 20. Contemplate on it, especially in light of Matthew 22 explanation of the ten words. Allow the mind of Christ, which is yours now, to reveal to you the why of the ten words. May he grant you eyes to see him in them. May he grant us all the hearts and minds to contemplate on the truths that are contained in them about him then perhaps we will love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our minds, and with all of our strength for his glory. Then maybe we'll understand that the Ten Commandments are not a set of rules that we are to obey, but they speak of him and his holiness. And as we do live them out, it is speaking about how he is in us and how he has given us the ability to do these things. Saints, spend time reading through Exodus 20. Ponder the law, that covenant that God has made with us. Ponder it in light of the fact that he made this covenant and he brought you into this covenant. You didn't do it on your own. You can't do these laws but you can certainly know the Lord that made this covenant with you. Let's do that for his glory.